episode 62, Space Age Stove. I'm Merle Riedel, and you're listening to an August 27, 2008 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. I can wash out 44 pairs of socks and have them hanging out on the line. I can start to iron two dozen shirts before you can count from one to nine. The early 1960s were a golden age for household appliances and domesticity. Manufacturers were building products with quality and features never seen before. Frigidaire's custom Imperial Flare cooking stove proved such an impressive design. One family in Manhattan, Kansas used it for over 40 years, and they were heartbroken the day it stopped working. Join curator Blair Tarr and me as we examine what made this stove so hot. You'll find out how it freed both women and space, and why it bears a striking resemblance to an automobile. Later, join us as we connect William Allen White to the Olympic swimmer Michael Phelps. In 2008, Phelps won eight gold medals at the Beijing Games. White won a few prizes in his day, too. They were called Pulitzers. Find out who got more bling when we play Six Degrees of William Allen White. But first, Space Age Stove. Good morning, Blair. Good morning, your moralness. Today we're going to talk about a uh, space-age-looking cooking stove that was used in the Mershon family in Manhattan, Kansas for roughly 40 years. And uh, just so the listeners know, Manhattan is uh, one of the largest-sized cities in Kansas, and it's located in northeast Kansas near the military installation of Fort Riley. Um, Blair, you're not going to say anything about K-State? I'm amazed. It's also, it's also home to Kansas State University, uh, home of the Wildcats. Um, One of us is an alumnus. It's not me. <laughs> Blair, could you describe uh, the physical appearance of this revolutionary Frigidaire stove and describe some of its more impressive features? Because it's got some pretty interesting features to it. Well, sure. This lovely Frigidaire Custom Imperial Flutter Stove, which is behind the curtain that Carol Merrill is standing behind. You probably don't get that reference, do you? No. Anybody no. out there know Let's Make a Deal? Uh, anyway. Uh, it's a rather impressive-looking stove. It's about six feet high altogether. Uh, it's kind of squared off and blocky, which is very typical of the 1960s. But And yet it, it does save a little space in the way it is set up. It sits on a base, which is a place where you can store pots and pans. And then you have above it the cooking surface and also an oven surface. Uh, the burners, the burners for the cooking surface are perhaps sort of impressive because those actually pull out. Yeah, they actually slide out. It's a full range yeah. that slides out and then slides back, back in. When in you're done. So that you can won't be running into it <laughs> as you're trying to find that midnight snack at night. Uh, the oven has a glass front to it, so you can see how the cooking is proceeding, or the baking rather, and, and the, the controls are right above uh, that. And there, 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 like you said, there's a few features that the catalog for the 1960s for the stove said are 
things that were considered important, like the heat minder control. What is the heat minder control? What does that do? That was a sensor that automatically shut things off if it got too hot. A heat minder? A heat minder, or it turned the heat back on if the temperature went too low. Wow. Isn't that impressive? Uh... Well, it is a long stretch. I mean, that's a long step from the Victorian potbelly cast iron yes, stove. Yes, and you sort of had to guess just how hot and cold it should be. Yeah, it's although people that use those cast iron stoves said they always sort of figured it out after a while. You just mm-hmm. had to have experience at doing it. Jerry and Jacqueline Mershon used this stove in their Manhattan home for 40 years, like I said. Yes. Um, who were the Mershons, and whom do you suspect did the majority of the cooking on this stove? Well, who are the Mershons, not who were. They're still alive. Uh, we, we got into this with the chainsaw artist, didn't we? <laughs> oh, that's right. That's right. I'm sorry, Mershons. They are still alive. They are still we, alive. We, met we them picked them up, yes. Uh, uh, Jerry, I believe, is a district court judge in Manhattan. Uh, I'm not sure what Jackie does or did, but they're, they're a very lovely couple that has lived there in that their home in Manhattan for 40 years, as you've indicated. And that stove was something they bought in Manhattan uh, when they moved into the house. And I would guess Jackie probably did most of the cooking, but I'm not sure about that. Did, do you have any idea? Did they? How did they first acquire the stove? Was it there when they moved in? Did they build that home I, and install that stove? I'm not sure if they built the home, but I think they did buy it. I think they recall them saying when we were there that they bought the stove at a local store in Manhattan. Because mm-hmm. I remember when we went to go pick up the stove, it was a very 1960s home yes. the way it was built. It was split level, yeah. you know. You, you kind of descended up to get to the kitchen. You went down to get to the to the dining room. Uh, it was the very 1960s. Um, and, and even as we were in the kitchen where where the stove had been, we you could tell that it sort of fit in rather nicely with the arrangements mm-hmm. in, that, in the kitchen there. The stove, uh, like you mentioned earlier, it's uh, designed specifically to conserve space. Um, do you have any idea why people were so so concerned about saving space in the 1960s? I don't know. Our family certainly never seemed interested in conserving space in the 60s. <laughs> I, I'm really not sure what the answer is to that. I think it is something that you have the idea that every inch counted, and it may even be a throwback to the idea of the old Wooten desk that there was a place for everything and everything in its place. Mm-hmm. Do you think the um, the range, which is like the main feature of it, the range slides back in, do you think that was an aesthetic Issue, or was that simply to, to prevent people from burning themselves on the on on ranges or heaters that were cooling off? Well, the way it's uh, designed, I would hope it has some sort of safety concern there because having it stick out, I would think you would run the risk of. I think I would walk into it actually when mm-hmm. it was pulled out and actually working. I'd, I'd be a little worried about that myself. Mm-hmm. But apparently, they had the Mercedes had no difficulty with it. They spoke glowingly of it. Uh, yeah. The entire time that they've had, they had the stove, and they really didn't want to get rid of it. Um, in some ways, this stove sort of resembles the automobiles of the 1960s. Um, it's large. It's uh, painted kind of a garish brown-looking color. <laughs> it's got tons of sharply pointed chrome edges. 
Is uh, is there any reason that Frigidaire was producing stoves that looked like automobiles? It may have something to do with the fact that they were a division of General Motors at that time. <laughs> so it's probably <laughs> the same designers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, although it doesn't really look anything like the 63 or 67 Oldsmobiles my parents had. <laughs> <laughs> so Frigidaire was actually owned by General Motors? They were owned by General Motors. Hmm. And so there may be a reason why it looks like a car to you. It's uh, a transformer. <laughs> wow. <laughs> the Mershons finally uh, removed the, snow, the stove in 2008, um, which was uh, a, bit of a, a, a bit of a big event for them. Uh, what were the circumstances of this stove's demise, and how did the family react? Well, they were doing some remodeling of their kitchen, but they also mentioned that the thermostat was slowly going on the, the stove, and they were unable to find. And, and they said they made a national search for a replacement part and just couldn't find it. And I took a look on the internet. There, there are sites out there that of people who are satisfied owners of this stove that are desperately trying to find parts that keep their stoves going. So really, it probably speaks very highly of the stove. And they did themselves too. They were not, they were sad to see the stove leave after all those years because, well, it's what Mrs. Mershon said that she said, the stove reflected some of the forward thinking of the time. Stoves like this made today are nowhere near the quality of this, this one. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, yeah, I can imagine that people are still interested in I mean, if you have a stove that has lasted 40 years, you have a good product there. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I, you know, it, it's not just a sentimental connection for her. Like, she really felt like that was a highly functional stove and well-designed. So, uh you know, you got to give credit to Frigidaire and General yes. Motors. <laughs> All right, Blair, my last question. Um, in 1983, Stephen King made the horror film Christine. You're wondering how this relates. I realize that. Well, Christine, the car, possessed its own personality, albeit a slightly sadistic one. In the 1980s television series Knight Rider, the technically advanced Pontiac Trans Am had a personality and a British accent. If this stove could have a personality of its own, what celebrity do you think it would resemble? Well, actually, well, actually, I think that, uh, getting back to Knight Rider there for a second, I think that's actually a cultured accent, maybe a, more of a Boston accent because... Oh, is it really? It's the voice of William Daniels, who was Brooklyn-born to begin with. <laughs> oh. It is, well, you might know him as the principal in Boy Meets World. Oh, that's right. Yeah, uh, I can't tell if it's British or if it's just a cultured yeah, Boston. But, uh, yes, he also played Dr. Craig on St. Elsewhere and has shown up as John Adams occasionally. So it's probably more Boston or developed as more Boston now than his original Brooklyn accent, but it's not British. <laughs> All right. The, the, you know, kid Is that avoid the actual question? <laughs> no. Well, I have a suggestion. Um, at first, I was going to say Rachel Ray because, well, this stove appears to love to cook. Yeah. And it's very modern and shiny. And that kind of reminds me of Rachel Ray. But um, <laughs> then the stove with the uh, with the the heat minder and you know the the sensor that went out might, makes me think it could be a bit cantankerous. So I would suggest that it look that it would have the personality of Justin Wilson, who people may know better as the Cajun cook. He's the guy that always uh, kind of talked yeah. in a Cajun accent, added a lot of sherry to everything. So. Uh, Yes, there's nothing like cooking with sherry. That's the, no, I, I, the only personality that I could think of, and I don't know why, because it, I don't think it quite fits the stove, but it's it's also from the Food Network. So it's, 
That's Guy Fieri, who's the host of Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. Oh, that's the dude with the spiky white yeah, hair. Yeah, there's something sort of sort of kind of hip about him, and this thing was probably pretty hip, such as, such as it was for the 60s. Yeah. And this would be the kind of money stove that Guy Fieri would want to get out there. And <laughs> All right. Well, Blair, uh, thanks for telling us about the Mershon, the Mershons and their stove. You're quite welcome. If you change your mind, take a chance on the first in line, take a chance on the unsteel free, take a chance on me. And now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Joining me today is the Historical Society's Public Information Officer, Teresa Jenkins. Hello. Good morning. And Assistant Registrar, Nikayla Zimmerman. Hi. Good morning, Nikayla. Good morning. This week, we are connecting William Allen White, a Pulitzer Prize-winning newspaper editor from Emporia, Kansas, to Michael Phelps, the champion swimmer and perhaps the most successful Olympian of the modern games. Uh, just a little background on Mr. Phelps. Um, he was born in 1985, which is sad because I believe <laughs> I was in first grade in 1985. <laughs> he was born in Baltimore, Maryland. He is the son of a police officer and a middle school principal. You may have seen his, uh, you may have seen his mom in some of the footage of the Beijing Games. Um, he attended the University of Michigan, and uh, while he was there, he studied sports and marketing management. At the age of 15, actually when he was still in, in I guess he would have just been in high school, he um, qualified to compete in the 2000 Olympic Games in Sydney. All in all, he's won a total of 16 Olympic medals. Can you imagine wearing all your Olympic medals at one time? <laughs> 16 medals, that's 14 gold and 2 bronze, I think. Um, and they break down like this. He had he got 8 medals in the 2004 Athens game and 8 gold medals in the 2008 Beijing games. And that puts him at second in total career Olympic medals. Um, he's just behind uh, some Russian gymnast. <laughs> and uh, actually, there is a theory to his success at swimming. And it works a little bit like this. It, it all goes down to his body style. He has a long, thin torso, which creates low drag. His arm span is 6 feet 7 inches. Wow. That is taller than his height. Um, so he has long arms, which create powerful propulsion paddles. <laughs> and he has short legs, which also creates low drag um, and leads to a hydrofoil effect. Um, what is the hydrofoil effect, Merle? <laughs> you know I'm not going to go into detail here because I don't think I could explain it. Um, he has size 14 feet, which are pretty hefty flippers. So that's the theory of why he's so good at swimming. And one, one last thing I want to add is Phelps. It's, it's slightly an unfortunate name because once we started looking into him, we realized that his middle name is Fred Phelps, Michael Fred Phelps. He's named after his father, Fred Phelps. <laughs> Not the Fred Phelps. Not the Fred Phelps, <laughs> the religious zealot that um, lives and works here in Topeka, Kansas. So it's not the same one, but it's an unfortunate name. Um, Nikayla, I believe you have found a connection between William Allen White and Mr. Phelps. I Michael did. Phelps. Yes, yes, Michael Phelps. Let's continue calling Michael. Um, okay, so Michael Phelps' teammates in Beijing nicknamed him Gomer because they thought he bared a striking resemblance to Gomer Pyle. <laughs> I could see that. A TV character portrayed by Jim Neighbors. Jim Neighbors was honored on January 19, 2007, at an event called A Night of American Heroes, which was supposed to recognize people who epitomize the ideals of American heroism <laughs> and values. Don't ask me how he fit into that, but okay. Um, also honored at that ceremony was U.S. Senator Daniel K. Inouye. 
Uh, I probably just butchered his name. I'm is that the Hawaiian senator? Yes, he is from the Hawaii. World War II vet? Exactly, which takes us to the next level. <laughs> um, Inoue met Bob Dole at Percy Jones Army Hospital while both were recovering from injuries sustained in battle during World War II, and they remain lifelong friends. And as we know from previous Six Degrees, Bob Dole was a friend of William Lindsay White, who was the son of William Allen White. <laughs> So there you go. <laughs> well, golly. So exactly. he's Jim Neighbors, Bob Dole. Yeah. A senator um, from a Hawaii. senator from Hawaii. <laughs> All right. Hey, if whatever it's it one, takes. One thing we've learned from Six Degrees of William Allen White is it's random. It's completely <laughs> random. All right. Uh, Teresa, can you beat that? Do you have Do you have a solution? Oh boy, I don't know if I can beat Grandma Kyle, but I'll, <laughs> I'll try. Michael Phelps, as we know, attended the University of Michigan. Fellow Wolverine, Helen Ogden. Mahine, whose name I probably butchered, <laughs> earned her doctorate from the University of Michigan in the 1920s. She had previously taught journalism at the University of Kansas. Ooh, is and, that the William Allen White we School? Know, we know that that later became the William Allen White School of Journalism. In 1924, Mahine created a compilation of editorials called The Editor and His People. The editor, who was the subject of the book, was our friend, William Allen White, who also wrote the introduction and the footnotes for the book. Oh, wow. Now, Merlin Nakela, what I think makes playing Six Degrees of William Allen White so easy and fun is that <laughs> White knew so many people from all walks of life, and he appreciated knowing them. In the introduction to Mahin's book, he ends by writing about this in third person, quote, this much is certain. He has had a good ride with a lot of dear people and would like to go again. Wow. Nice. Very good. <laughs> he, knew, he knew that he knew a lot of people, but and he appreciated that. He didn't take it for granted. Mm -hmm. And we appreciate it, too. <laughs> we do, too. <laughs> and thanks for writing everything down. Nikayla, <laughs> yeah. um, would you like to share our next challenge? Sure. Uh, Six Degrees of William Allen White was recently challenged by one of our listeners. Roberta of El Dorado, Kansas, wants us to connect William Allen White to the international man of mystery, Austin Powers. <laughs> The only trick is we can't use William Allen White's old standby BFF Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah, she, no sp problem. she specified that in the email. She said, yeah, <laughs> funny connection, but you can't use Teddy Roosevelt. Well, she should love today's episode because Teddy Roosevelt was not mentioned in either solution. That's right. Nicely so. done. So if you think you connect William Allen White to uh, the world's biggest James Bond wannabe, uh, send a chain <laughs> of connection to podcast at kshs.org. That is podcast with an S. That concludes episode 62. If you would like to see images of this impressive Frigidaire stove from the 1960s, go to our website, kshs.org, and click on the podcast icon. Come back in two weeks when Assistant Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman and I examine a 16mm movie camera used by Centron Studios in Lawrence, Kansas. This studio was widely known for producing mental hygiene films. What were these films? In the 1950s, they were intended to teach children a variety of important life lessons, such as good posture and how to make friends. Today, they just come off as a creepy form of mind control. This podcast is a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories.